on this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, the contract pricing problems that may not be problems after all, and testing technology for special operators. It's Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. The next episode of the FedGov Today television show is coming this Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 in Washington, D.C. My guests include the commander of Air Force Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Tony Bauernfeind, and the director of information management and technology in the office of the Secretary of Defense, Danielle Metz. If you miss the TV show Sunday morning or you miss the podcast anytime, you can always find them on demand at fedgovtoday.com. The Inspector General's Office of the General Services Administration has a new look at the transactional data reporting pilot on the multiple award schedule. That new look finds more problems on top of the problems the IG office found before. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You've written about this a couple of times. I guess my first question is, why does this matter to you? Why does it matter to the agencies that use the multiple award schedules? And why does it matter to the vendors that sell through the schedule? Welcome. Francis, thanks. I think the reason it matters to people like me is because the IG, I think, has a very profound stridency when it comes to the transactional data reporting program for the schedules. And I kind of wonder whether or not that stridency hasn't hindered their judgment a little bit and maybe caused them to miss out on some of the things that the agency is saying that is working well with TDR. Uh, why that matters to customers, you know, anything that could potentially undermine the, cost, the confidence that customers have in pricing on the schedules program, uh, it's not good for schedule contractors. And keep in mind that while there are some large companies on that contract, the overwhelming majority of companies on the schedules program are small businesses and over a third of the business goes directly to those small businesses. So when you're undermining confidence in the program, you're undermining confidence in a lot of small businesses and that's not helpful either. If you're a contractor, you know, a lot of contractors took the transactional data reporting route to get on the schedules program simply because their pricing dynamics are not conducive to allowing them to get on schedule the traditional way. So if they uh, have the TDR route closed down to them, they're gonna have a tough business decision to make on whether or not they have to leave the program, which would of course reduce competition and make the schedules program less robust than it is today. So you write in the Week Ahead newsletter, it's unclear whether the OIG was more upset the collected TDR data was unusable, which uh, it, you quote that report as saying such, or whether schedules program officials didn't use it in making price reasonableness determinations. There's mixed messages, it sounds like, in your view, in this report. Yeah, Francis, I can't figure it out. On the one hand, the IG is criticizing GSA schedules people for not using TDR data. And in the very next breath, they say TDR data is no good anyway. So that kind of comes begs the point is, you know, how valid are the criticisms being leveled by the IG with the TDR program? You know, it, it, did anybody vet that before they sent that out? <laughs> uh, you know, which is it? Uh, you know, you, you want GSA to use good data. You want them to make good decisions. 
The fact is GSA contracting officers have plenty of data, Francis, uh, that they have access to to make good decisions on price reasonableness. And also TDR data itself was never primarily meant to be an assessment tool to validate offers for getting new products and services on the schedules program. It could be used as an ancillary uh, data input, but it was never supposed to be. Ironically, TDR, the TDR program was supposed to get away from reliance on contractor supplied pricing information and over to market research in order for contracting officers to determine price reasonableness. I think the IG either forgot that or they just kind of missed the boat here. Yeah, you're right. GSA Senior Procurement Executive Jeff Kosas recently told a Coalition for Government Procurement spring conference crowd that the agency's data show that TDR contracts actually result in better contract level pricing than those negotiated via the traditional schedule contracting route. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Isn't that what matters that the government's getting the best price it possibly can get? Francis, I do think that's what matters. And when you've got GSA's own analysis showing that there you're getting better contract level pricing. You know, first of all, that's a win for the government because it's lower pricing. But let's also remember, secondly, that contract level pricing on the schedules is just that. Uh, frequently, in the great majority of cases, the prices that customers pay are actually lower than the contract level price. So if you're starting at a lower contract level price, that means you're going to get a really competitive price when there's an actual task order to be bid on. So that's a win for government agencies and it's a win for GSA. So remind me where the puzzle pieces all fit together about the discussions that you and I had and that I had with Emily Murphy when she was the administrator of GSA about getting away from pricing on the schedules anyway and moving the pricing to the task orders as much as possible. I mean, that was one of the things that I think people give her a lot of credit for achieving during her time as administrator. Am I, did I miss a detail somewhere? No, you're absolutely right, Francis. Now, GSA has the authority, it's called so-called Section 827 authority, to issue non-contract level pricing uh, contracts. Recently, they've had a little legal setback, not related to the schedules program on that front. It was related to uh, their Polaris small business IT contract. But the fact remains that uh, GSA has developed its own tools to assess price reasonableness for schedule contracts. Uh, they also have the traditional route to rely on vendor supplied uh, information. Uh, when I got into the schedules program back in the day, uh, GSA almost exclusively looked at a vertical pricing, Francis, to determine price reasonableness. Today, they look both vertically and horizontally. Uh, today's schedule program, contractors will absolutely tell you, holds their feet to the fire in terms of offering good prices. I was wondering whether there was even a GSA when you first got involved in the schedule program. <laughs> or maybe that, was, maybe that was after your time, as they say. Well, that, you kind of go where I wanted to go next, which is the piece in the new Week Ahead newsletter about that exactly that pricing and GSA and all of that. What's the connection between what you're writing uh, Monday morning and what you were writing about, about this IG report, if any? Well, Francis, it all comes down to data. You know, we're like anything else in government contracting and government market uh, business, 
it's a very data-driven market. And the TDR report, the IG report is about the, you know, whether or not GSA is receiving quality data on that program. In the meantime, however, I'm writing this week about other forms of data analysis. In this case, GSAs demand that contractors provide, quote, highly competitive, end quote, pricing in order to obtain a GSA schedule contract. Well, I just mentioned, Francis, GSA has a lot of tools at their disposal to ensure fair and reasonable pricing, the term that's actually used in the regulations for the schedules program, but nowhere is the term highly competitive defined. And what GSA is really trying to get at, again, is more data to justify pricing and to ensure that the government's getting a good deal. Now, on the surface of that, there certainly isn't anything wrong with that objective. The problem is that you know, fair and reasonable pricing and most favored customer pricing and all the other scheduled terms have all gone through a regulatory vetting process. Everybody understands or should understand what those terms mean. There's a common definition. Highly competitive has not gone through that process. It's just sitting there in a, almost as an aside in the GSA schedule solicitation. And yet, because of pricing pressure uh, being uh, pressed on the agency, a lot of it from the IG, contracting officers are hooking on to the phrase highly competitive, uh, and it means different things to different people. It's subjective, uh, there, it hasn't been vetted. And look, I think GSA knows that it hasn't been vetted. GSA knows that it probably should be vetted. So they really ought to knock off using highly competitive as a standard until it's been properly vetted and gone through the rulemaking process. I note that the General Services Administration was established July 1st, 1949. I don't know about the date of the <clears throat> beginning of the schedules, but uh, I, so I, I can understand you, that you haven't been around quite that long, my friend. Not quite that long, no. It's great to see you. Thanks very much for joining me, Larry Allen. Francis, thank you very much. You can read more about the TDR pilot and find a link to the IG report in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. Act IAC's Health Innovation Summit's coming Thursday, June 8th in Reston. Speakers include the Chief Information Officer at HHS, Carl Mathias, Dr. Carolyn Clancy of the Department of Veterans Affairs, and many more leaders from across the government health IT community. You can read more about the event and find a link to register at fedgovtoday.com slash events. Special Operations Command's running some innovative programs to get special operators the equipment they need. Those programs come from SOCOM Science and Technology Directorate. Lisa Sanders is Director of Science and Technology at SOCOM. At Soft Week 2023, she told me about her directorate's mission. We essentially do all of the left of program development. Uh, we are not a science lab. We work from the applied research all the way through technology demonstration. For those, uh, those of your audience that are familiar with the technology scale, we typically work at a, a high TRL2 
up through a TRL six slash seven. So that essentially means in plain English that we do uh, lab prototypes through field prototypes, mm-hmm. not basic science, not off the shelf, um, and we cover the everything from satellites to submarines, body armor to to blood products, um, radios, platforms, the entire gamut of things. Um, a big area of interest for us right now is working in the information domain in order to support the commander's uh, focus on winning left of conflict. Mm-hmm. How does a project or a potential project come to your office for the process that you just described? Are you going out and looking for potential applications or is someone within the organization coming to you and saying, what can you find out for us on a particular area or some other process, all of the above? What does that look like? It really is all of the above. So there is a long-standing bottoms-up process where capability gaps are gathered from all of our stakeholders, whether that's the operational users, the program offices that we transition to, uh, a number of different sources. Those those are very good at capturing the next step for things. There's also a deconstruction of uh, our, na- our missions that are defined at the national strategic level. Mm-hmm. So when the Secretary of Defense identifies what special operations needs to do in support of the national defense mm-hmm. strategy, we deconstruct and say, where is the technology needed to enable that? So that would be more of a strategic nature. And then we have a whole line of effort that's about uh, what are the things we should be investing in that we don't know. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of exploration based upon what kind of a concept. So a lot of those questions are phrased around how can SOCOM do their mission in a world where there are sensors everywhere, for instance, or in a contested communications environment. And then we deconstruct from that, where are the actual gaps, vice what can we do today? All of those turn into projects. It's a fascinating idea of investing in what you don't know. Mm-hmm. How do you know where to start, I guess? Yeah, and that's that's been an evolution over the last few years. Uh-huh. Um, it actually derived from engagements where, when I was briefing what we were investing in, there were certain priority gaps that we weren't investing in because nobody had given me a solution for them. And I realized that if I waited for people to give me a solution, I would always have a gap. Yeah. So we started this process where we start with the question and then we spend a lot of design thinking time with very divergent thinkers. Mm-hmm. If we ask the same people, they're the ones that didn't give me a solution before. Right. So we go out to academia, we go to the startup entrepreneur community, and bring our users into that conversation and brainstorm concepts. Mm-hmm. And then turn those through a systems engineering process into, in order to do this capability, here's the gap that we actually have that allows us to define Here's what we need to invest in, mm-hmm. and then we move into the project. Understood. You mentioned the information domain is one of your emphases, one of your priorities today. How has that trajectory changed over time, and what do, is it is it possible to foresee what direction you expect to see it go in in the in the future, or do you just kind of have to take it as it comes, as policy and the landscape dictate? Um, again, this is a yes and kind <laughs> of an answer. Um, how has it changed? Historically, Special Operations Command has always had the mission for information operations. It's one of our core military uh, tasks that we do. But historically, those have been in very specific domains Mm -hmm. with very specific rules of engagements and very specific authorities. Over the last 
10-ish years, the information domain has exploded and it has blurred all of those lines. So whereas, you know, you used to have authority to conduct uh, uh, influence operations in a certain modality, say a leaflet, for instance, or over a radio broadcast, people gain their knowledge so many different ways now that the question becomes, can you predict how they're going to do it in the future? Mm-hmm. I don't think I can predict exactly how they can do it, but what we're working on is how do we develop approaches that can be applied whatever the media is that people are, are, are gathering their information in. I mean, we're sitting here having a, a, an interview that probably is coming out in an auditory podcast fashion, but somebody might tweet out that same information. I don't need to have to go after specific different utilization to cross those modes. So trying to figure out how the technology can help us do that is where we're focused. Does that blurring of the lines that you referred to make your job easier or harder in evaluating potential solutions for the customers that you have within SOCOM? One of the things I want to emphasize here is that in the science and technology exploration domain, I am not asking the question of what authorities do I need to use them. We're exploring what the art of the possible is. So exploring that becomes easier because there are a lot of people in the commercial domain doing this implementing that information that requires policy adjustments is a challenge because it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So, to exp- but, but there becomes a bit of a chicken and an egg because if you don't know what you might be able to do, you can't ask for policy to do it. Yeah. So we're, 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 we're um, exploring, assessing, exploring, assessing. So that's sort of a a, a divergent, convergent way of getting at the problem. So, and then referring back to what you were talking about earlier is kind of the source of where um, these ideas come from. I imagine that also gives you some leeway when someone comes to you and says, hey, we would like to explore this or that. Since you're the art of the possible people, you can say, well, have you considered this other thing that might be a third venue or, or whatever? Am I on the right track? That is... Oftentimes I get asked the question, what's the most exciting technology? Uh And I believe that the actual breakthroughs are happening at the intersection where you bring together multiple modalities of technology. Somebody has, you know, an algorithm that scrapes information and is able to identify um, indicators of veracity, truth. Other people have a display mechanism that can, um, can... provide that information in a format that the decision maker can apply it. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else maybe has a different um, communications network that allows us to do that in a contested environment. Bringing all those together is really where the breakthrough is. So in the art of the possible, we get the opportunity to ask people, hey, have you talked to this kind Mm -hmm. of a technology? Um, It's a different way of doing development. It is not this... um, linear, here is a cohesive, integrated solution. It's a, how can I mash together different approaches to solve a problem or give a capability that we don't have today? So you're almost assembling a mosaic, putting pieces of a mosaic next Mm -hmm. to each other to create whatever it is the solution is that the 
uh, person or group that you're trying to serve is looking for. Yeah, it, I, I often refer to it as a Chinese menu uh -huh. or a toolbox. Yeah. You know, a little of this and a little of that. And then it, there does come a question about what's the actual implementation methodology. And that is where we always are compliant with governance law policy. Yeah. We have to make sure that, that in an implementation mode that we follow all of that. Who are your closest partners within SOCOM? Um, so we, we serve the entire enterprise. So there is an element of our user community, which comes through our components. We also work with our program executive officers because they're our transition partner. And then we work particularly with the J5 in order to understand what are the concepts that SOCOM is being asked to operate with. And then right now the command data office is working at how do we fuse all that information together across the enterprise. Lisa Sanders of the Science and Technology Directorate at SOCOM. You can read more more about her organization in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. The FedGov Today podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show on any of those platforms so you don't miss the next episode of FedGov Today with Francis Rose. It's coming Thursday. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening. <music>